This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Melancholy, NASA, Emperor Coffee, Rockefeller, Rockefeller. The sound of that. Mm-hmm. Hello again and welcome to episode 32 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Rockefeller. But Katie, which Rockefeller? Oh my gosh, this is where I start to doubt... (laughs) I mean, I I hesitate to say this, but I do sort of doubt Billy because there's quite a few Rockefellers. Heaps of Rockefellers. Past, present, and future. And at the time that we're talking about, which is sort of mid-50s, early 50s, there's a few Rockefellers playboying themselves around on the scene. But I think we're talking about Winthrop Rockefeller, who was the fourth son of John D. Rockefeller Jr., grandson of the founder of Standard Oil. Yeah, and we think this, Katie, because Winthrop, as you say, was something of a playboy, had a controversial wedding followed by a controversial divorce, which occupied a lot of space in the gossip columns that Billy might have read as a young man. He may have seen his mother transfixed, like, you know, waiting breathlessly for the morning newspaper so she could cast her eyes over the gossip column. Katie, we're only guessing though, aren't we? And on this show, we like to speak to someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Our guest today is the academic and author Angie Maxwell. Angie is director of the Diane Blair Centre of Southern Politics and Society at the University of Arkansas and an associate professor of political science there. Angie, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you for having me. Number one question, do you think we're right? Is it Winthrop? I mean, I think it has to be, specifically because it falls in the part of the song that's really focused on 1953, which is, of course, the big year that Winthrop Rockefeller moves to Arkansas, kind of a shocking move out into the middle of nowhere um, at following this pretty, you know, scandalous um, divorce that occupied all of the, you know, society pages and had for, you know, two years. I think if we were watching a film of his life, the director might well do one of those sort of drop intros where we see Winthrop arriving in Arkansas in disgrace having been rusticated, which is a new word for you and I, Katie. (laughs) And then we might jump back to the start of his life. So just tell us a little bit, Angie, first of all, about the Rockefellers, because we know they're minted. We know they are philanthropic. But who is this family and why are they so big in America? Well, I mean, they're they're one of the, you know, wealthiest, um, you know, families in all of kind of American history. And the fact that there were so many sons specifically, made them very eligible kind of bachelors, which, of course, their dating lives and that kind of history made all of the national newspapers. So Winthrop Rockefeller was kind of the black sheep, you know, of the Rockefeller family. He made a, he struck out a different path than his brothers. Um, And we see that starting a as a young man, um, when he switches to a different boarding school from the school the other children were in, when he leaves Yale in 1934 and heads to 
the Texas and Louisiana oil fields to get his hands dirty. We know now that Winthrop Rockefeller was struggled with dyslexia, which has probably had something to do with his struggles academically, but he, he wanted to get his hands dirty. And that was, you know, a story that the media really followed for a great deal of his life. So he was aroused about in those oil fields, and then he ended up enlisting really early in World War II. Why did he do that? Because he didn't have to do that. No, he didn't. He actually, when he leaves um, Texas and Louisiana, he enrolls in this business training camp um, in upstate New York. I mean, I think he's still trying to find kind of some way into the family business, but this business training camp also had some civilian training for people who were kind of pre-enlistment. And he got very interested in that. And within six months of joining this you know, business training program, he actually decides to, you know, enlist in the in the army. We've got a picture of him in his army days here, Angie. Katie, we're looking at this very dapper individual with his arms folded, staring into the distance slightly moodily, his cap at a rakish angle, his hair very well trimmed, not a hair on his chin. Angie, he seems to have been a success in his military career. You know, the people that have written, you know, extensively about Winthrop Rockefeller always, you know, say this about him is that he liked that real world experience. He did not do well in the kind of inherited wealth and philanthropic social standings. He wanted to get his hands dirty. Um, He wanted to be on the front lines. I think there was always an effort to prove himself to his father and prove himself to his brothers. And he definitely did that in his military experience. During World War II, he receives the Bronze Star and a Purple Heart and sees quite a lot of, you know, real combat. You know, he was aboard a ship that was attacked by a Japanese kamikaze right outside Okinawa, and he's the only officer that survives. You know, his face is burned. He wasn't one of these wealthy folks who joined the military and kind of had a cushy desk job. I mean, he really saw things. I don't think that's an easy transition. I don't think it was an easy transition for a lot of a lot of people who were in the war. You know, what you're saying, Angie, about uh, wanting to prove himself, it makes me think that, oh my gosh, there must be so much baggage associated with being a Rockefeller. I mean, not only that, but you're one of four other boys in the family and, you know, all eyes are on you, certainly within the social circles, certainly from the scions of the Rockefeller. Was there sibling rivalry with his brothers? Apparently, there very much was sibling rivalry. He was awkward and kind of, you know, they teased him as being pudgy as a young boy. His two older brothers, you know, would ridicule him quite a bit. And then, of course, not doing well in school. I mean, to the point of almost flunking out. He definitely received a great deal of um, kind of negative attention from his brothers. But I also think that he was kind of lost in all of that wealth just coming out of the Great Depression. I mean, we forget that sometimes, but to be at Yale, right, as the country is so um, destitute and people are suffering so much and in bread lines in the 30s and to have that kind of wealth that you didn't create, you just inherited. 
you know, he was described as somewhat lost. And I think he found himself on the front lines of the projects that he undertook. Do you think, Angie, that he was sort of rudderless when he came back to New York after World War II, that he was uh, having trouble sort of finding a path? I do. And I think that that was not unique um, for a lot of people that came back from the war. We kind of see this back and forth. There's the search for meaning or some, some way to apply yourself. And at the same time, there is a celebratory kind of atmosphere, too, because so many men had been gone from the country, there's a parties and dances and a slew of weddings and kind of that culture um, really takes off after the war. Um, and he was the only brother who was not married um, when he comes back. And so he's seen, you know, he's tabbed as the most eligible bachelor in America, which creates headlines constantly and people are following every single person he is seen with. And so I definitely think he indulged in a lot of that and went out and partied some on those circuits. But I think at the same time, there was a what's next. There seems to be a real contrary streak to Winthrop, Angie. So we've seen that already with his decision to leave Yale and to go to the oil fields. And then he's got probably his pick of New York City's socialites. Instead, he goes for Bobo slash Barbara, who is the daughter of Lithuanian immigrants, daughter of a coal mine and a railroad worker. She's named Miss Lithuania at 17, so she is quite the beauty. But at the point he meets her, she's living in a fourth-floor walk-up apartment she is an actress with a stage name, Eva Paul. She's not really the sort of material I imagine that the rest of the Rockefellers want to see son number four married off to. What's so interesting is what Winthrop Rockefeller said about her himself. And what he said about her is that when they met, he said it was on a blind date, her candor, her realness, that she was charming, but not in the kind of, I guess, fake way that he encountered often that he praised her independence. He said specifically, you know, she was divorced and he said, but she was married during most of the war and her husband was, uh, you know, a U.S. diplomat and was away. And he said, you know, rather than sitting around and kind of, you know, doing nothing with that time, she used her education and drama and decided she was going to, you know, pursue acting. And he admired that. He didn't see her the way the media kind of portrayed her, which was a kind of rags to riches, you know, Cinderella story. I love this detail, Tom. I read that Bobo's mother and stepfather were unable to attend the ceremony because they were making a batch of Lithuanian cheese on their Indiana farm. <laughs> that happens, doesn't it? It happens sometimes. Sorry, can't come to a, your wedding. We're making Lithuanian I'm cheese. I'm up to my elbows in curds, guys. <laughs> I can't get there, but mazel tov. But maybe Winthrop and Bobo were less bothered than they might have been because also at the wedding were the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Ah. So this was quite a big do, this, this wedding, Angie. It really was. And that's what's also so strange is on one hand, you know, Rockefeller pursues a divorcee, Right pursues someone not of his social status, not even close, and an actress. But then at the same time, he has a wedding fit for a Rockefeller, 
right? He kind of straddles both of those worlds at the same time. He doesn't throw it off and say, well, we're eloping, right? He, he, he actually pulls her into that Rockefeller, you know, world. And you see him do that repeatedly. He never thumbs his nose at his family in some kind of serious or permanent way. But he also doesn't follow exactly kind of the dictates that come with that status. I wonder if there was a conversation at the wedding, perhaps over the cheese board or maybe the <laughs> glasses of champagne with uh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Edward VIII, of course, who abdicated to be with Wallace Simpson, a divorcee. Yes, that's right. right. They had this in common, didn't they? Thumbing their nose at the establishment. Uh, so what went wrong in this marriage? I mean, because they, they were, you know, they obviously were committed um, I think she was uh, had a bun in the oven probably by the time they got married because mm-hmm. uh, the baby showed up maybe seven months later. That is what they say. Yeah. What what happens in this marriage? You know, one thing that's interesting about like how society reacted to Bobo Sears is despite all of this um, kind of judgment in the beginning, she's so charming um, and so attractive. I mean, she's like in, immediately voted into like the top, you know, the best dressed woman in America, you know, within a year of marrying him um, and kind of really praised in those, you know, social circles. We don't know specifically what the straw was that broke the camel's back, but she revealed in, you know, the media that he was a heavy drinker, a heavy partier. As she accused him of having discovered a very large pornography collection, um, just behavior that she found, you know, absolutely unacceptable. You know, it wasn't a Cinderella story, I guess, um, that she had maybe believed it to be. At least the way he talked about her, that it did seem like a real love connection. I mean, that's how he talked about her. Um, and so that probably came with expectations. Um, that it was something, you know, very real and not, you know, a status-based marriage or something. And so those betrayals, I'm sure, cut deeply. So they marry in February 1948. They are separated two years later, but they don't get divorced until 1954. I've read a story, Angie, that she sort of ticks over financially by pawning different sorts of pawning by pawning a ring that he gave her in their courtship which was a diamond set in platinum she pawns it for thirty thousand dollars and that ticks over until the settlement i think that she was determined to get a large settlement to protect her son you know there's a custody fight over her young son um, I'm sure that's not. I'm sure the Rockefellers are not easy, an easy family um, to take on. And she hired and fired lawyers left and right until she, you know, got what she felt like she was worth and needed, you know, to raise, you know, their young son. But that length of time. Um, how long the divorce took and the divorce laws are all really changing in that moment in America in ways that are super complicated and different states um, have less stringent requirements, which is why they actually end up getting divorced in, um, you know, 
Las Ve- in Nevada. But it's a it's a battle over the fortunes, what she's entitled to, and kind of who's at fault and all of that, which is, you know, rapidly changing during that period of time. Yeah, it's really interesting because she was a tough customer. She taught herself divorce law, uh, burned through all those lawyers, like 20 lawyers or something. She told Time magazine, I want him to suffer the way he has made me suffer as he has humiliated me before the world. She, you know, when you think about it, the way you've laid it out, my gosh, you know, she was standing up to um, a dynasty, you know, not just one man. Absolutely right. Yeah. Standing up to a dynasty. And she is media savvy. This is a, a woman who was an actress and had gotten quite famous in her own right in this Cinderella story. And so to have him then be a philanderer or betray her and that be known publicly was, you know, something that she was not going to, to take you know, lightly. I like that she apparently had a catchphrase when she felt like she was being charged too much. She'd say, who do you think I am, a Rockefeller? <laughs> Ooh, Katie, this is quite the episode. Shall we have a cheeky little breather come back after the adverts? Hello, I'm Alan Cumming. And I have a new podcast called Alan Cummings Shelves. You see, I have quite a few shelves in my house that are sort of a museum of my life. In each episode, I'm going to take an item off my shelves, tell you why it's there in the first place, then start to talk about my memories of it. And then I chat with a friend who's involved in those memories. I've spoken to Ian McKellen about a hemp bracelet that he bought me on a nudist beach we visited together. Cindy Lauper about a pair of white leather gloves I wore on Broadway. And you even get to hear Jerry Halliwell talk about my Spice Girls lunchbox. And that is not a euphemism. I have some really amazing guests coming on to chat. So I just hope you will join me. And all you have to do to do that is to search for Alan Cummings Shelves, wherever you get your podcasts from. See you soon. She seems to have rolled with a punchy. She's definitely a fighter, Bobo. She gets $5.5 million in the divorce settlement, which I imagine is quite the figure in 1954. She gets a six-storey townhouse on the Upper East Side. Katie, this is how I got my head around quite how flash, quite how big that is. The house had its own squash court. Yeah, its own squash court that had 18-foot high walls. So, uh, yeah, that was just one room in this six-story townhouse. Uh, It's said that she married well and divorced better. Uh, (laughs) uh, So she's doing all right. How does this leave good old Winthrop Rockefeller? What does he do next? Buys a thousand acres on top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So he's having a little bit of a midlife crisis uh, by relocating to Arkansas. Uh, What's that big idea? Because Arkansas at the time had a lot of social uh, and financial problems. It absolutely did. He had a buddy in the war who was in Arkansas who invited him to come and visit. Um, And I think he saw it as a place he could kind of start over, you know, disappear. I mean, there's a lot of people that debate, you know, why did he come to Arkansas? But if you look at his longer history, the comfort he seemed to have on the front lines with kind of everyday people, it doesn't surprise me completely. There's also parts of Arkansas that are absolutely 
breathtakingly beautiful. And there was so much land that he could purchase and he could kind of, you know, build his own his own estate, so to speak, just one that looked probably a lot different than the one in Manhattan. And so he comes there and he buys Pettyjean Mountain, basically the top of Pettyjean Mountain, and immerses himself in the problems of this small little rural state. So he begins a political career, Angie. You'll have to help me out here because I get confused when I see his politics, but I see which party he was with. So he's a Republican, but he seems to have a very left-leaning strategy. He's doing things like he wants to raise taxes. He wants to spend more money on education. He's very philanthropic. He starts a model school. So just explain to me how that works. Because in my head, Republicans, low tax, low spending. Democrats, high taxes, high spending. And and another thing, if I could interject, uh, Republican and Democratic parties had very different identities in the 1950s than they do now. So a Southern Democrat was a very particular thing. So, yeah, we need help getting an overview here. Well, Everything you know about the two parties in 2021, you've got to reverse when you go back to the 1950s. The Rockefeller dynasty, the big family, had long been part of the Republican Party, which was a pro-business you know, party at the national level. But the parties on civil rights um, and on some of these issues are virtually indistinguishable in the 19, you know, 50s. They're going to take very different trajectories over the next kind of four or five decades. But in Arkansas, there just was no Republican Party. I mean, Arkansas was completely dominated by Democrats and had been since Reconstruction after the Civil War. Um, And so what he finds, since Republican Party is kind of synonymous with Rockefellers, is what can I build here? What whole new thing can I build? Um, And what he saw in Arkansas is you just had no revenue You know, the public goods that government can provide, it just didn't have the resources to provide for people. And so Arkansas becomes kind of a project to win the Rockefeller um, in ways that, you know, were very beneficial to the state and in ways that have a little bit of, you know, who's this outsider that's going to kind of fix us, right? Um, And they have a long-term legacy, but he he thinks that two-party competition is, you know, would be good for the state. He's not wrong in that. Um, But he's starting pretty much from scratch. What was he like as a campaigner? Was he a good public speaker? Did he have any charisma? Not really. (laughs) Not much of that at all. I mean, he has said himself that what he saw in Arkansas was such an inferiority complex, which is something I've written a, a lot about in the South, And meaning that he saw these really good, hardworking people who just had such a chip on their shoulder about the way they were criticized nationally. And there was something endearing, despite all of his flaws, there was something endearing that someone so wealthy who could live anywhere in the world, right, picked this state. And he doesn't seem like a natural politician because he's shy. He's not great at campaigning. He's a halting speaker. Why did he pursue this? Why did he put himself through it? Well, it kind of found him. So, you know, infamous Governor Orville Faubus um, taps Winthrop Rockefeller to lead what he was calling the Arkansas Industrial Development Commission. Basically, People were fleeing the state. Young people were looking for industrial jobs. 
um, farms were closing and we were, Arkansas was just losing population. And Faba says, we've got to do something about this. And so the, here comes this wealthy Rockefeller with all these connections that's moved to the state. So he taps him to head that up. He ends up bringing 600 new industries to Arkansas, 90,000 jobs to the tune of $270 million. He's wildly successful at getting people to invest in the state. And from that, you know, people were championing an option other than what the Democratic Party was, you know, putting up as Orville Faubus' reputation precedes him, I'm sure, to many with the Little Rock Central, you know, crisis and his staunch segregationist stance. Winthrop publicly objected to Faubus sending in the National Guard to Central High School in Little Rock to prevent federally mandated desegregation. Uh, those nine black students were attempting to integrate the school. And the fact that Winthrop was against it, and, you know, he's an outsider anyway, what did Arkansans make of this? What did they think of him? They thought that he was too rich to understand, you know, what they saw as being at stake in integration, which was tied up, you know, with access to things and old fears and kind of deeply racist attitudes from competition among poor whites and African-Americans that was played up by white elites for generations, right? So he just, he seemed like an outsider who had the kind of privilege to hold these values, I'm sure. I'm interested, Angie, in how you're saying Arkansas had sort of an inferiority complex about itself. And it makes me wonder whether Winthrop identified with that, like whether he saw himself as kind of the odd state out, the odd brother out, the odd man out. And uh, maybe that was a chance for him to not only remake the state, but remake himself. Absolutely. It's dead accurate. I think that he identified with that longing for approval, right? That desire to build something yourself as opposed to just inheriting. I mean, he revolutionizes agricultural um, practices on his mountain. He tries all kinds of experimental things. He wants to build something at this Winrock Farms. And and I think he shared with those Arkansans a need to prove himself. He was, you know, pretty devastated that his father never got to see what he built um, on on Pettigee Mountain. In fact, he had video. He had some early little films made about all that he was doing um, in the area. And then, of course, as governor, that he would you know, sent to his father, and his father apparently watched more than once, um, which meant a great deal to him. So I think there was this deep desire, you know, to kind of prove himself. um, And that takes him into the kind of the world of politics. And he does create some important systemic change. He's going to create a middle that didn't exist before, and that's going to pave the way for the politicians that come after, you know, Arkansas doesn't flip Republican until 2012 at the state legislative level. Really? And that's because he starts this Republican Party 
as a pro-civil rights party. So all these segregations don't flock to it. You know, it's different. It takes so much longer. He delayed that, like, you know, flip to what we have now. If he hadn't, Democrats couldn't have survived, you know, in the state. Would there have been a Bill Clinton without Winthrop Rockefeller? You know, I don't don't think so. Um, Or it would have looked very different because the fact that Winthrop Rockefeller created this alternative party um, that starts to gain traction, it allowed young progressives like Bill Clinton to capture that middle. And without that counterforce, it would have been just a faction fighting within the Democratic Party. And then probably the National Party, the National Republican Party, would have you know, transformed the state the way it did in South Carolina and Mississippi at a much earlier place where Democrats kind of couldn't survive. So I don't know if you'd have a Bill Clinton if you hadn't had a Winthrop Rockefeller. There's this lovely line, Katie, when he is beaten by the superbly named Dale Bumpers um, in the election of 1970. Winthrop says, The most meaningful measure of progress is that certain things are no longer acceptable to us as people. He's also the only governor in the South that does anything publicly um, to honor the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. after he's assassinated, the only one. Um, and so he really, he employs more African-Americans than any other governor, you know, before him and desegregates some of that workforce as governor. He commutes all of the prisoners on death or commutes their sentence to life in prison. Because of that, Arkansas does not execute anyone for over 20 years. He did make a real impact on the state, if that's what he was looking for, if he was lost and trying to build something, make a real impact and maybe find himself or redeem himself. He definitely did. Angie Maxwell, thank you so much for putting us in the picture with this particular Rockefeller. You made a good case for him. I wasn't convinced to begin with that this was the one that Billy was talking about, but I think he's a very impressive individual with a a lot of uh, nuances, nooks and crannies to his character. So thank you very much. Thank you all so much for having me. Katie, much like you, I think I've found myself quite liking the Rockefeller fella. Yeah. But also I have found myself wondering (laughs) whether the porn collection made it to Arkansas. Uh, Yeah, Angie's uh, raised more questions than she's answered with that that porn collection because uh, this is just how my brain works. I'm very earthy and simple. And I want to know how spicy that porn collection is is it just a few buttons undone at the top of the librarian's cardigan do we think a little glimpse of ankle a little glimpse of ankle or are there some writing crops maybe this needs a whole separate like sub episode (laughs) so next week uh, moving away from porn and the Rockefellers we have a very famous to me now never heard of him before this baseball player by the name of Roy Campanella Campi who was a catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers A remarkable man, not only for what he did in baseball, Katie, but after a tragic car accident, how he lived 
the rest of his life. Yeah, that's a, a very moving story, Triumph Over Tragedy. And if you want another podcast to listen to and you're into true crime, you can try Murder in House 2. Yeah, it's taken 15 years to make this podcast, and it's about a group of Marines who went into a village in the Iraq war and killed 24 innocent civilians, a lot of them women and children. It also includes some top-secret recordings. Check it out. Just search for Murder in House 2. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Spread That Fire. And if you feel like you'd want to get involved and perhaps recommend guests experts for future topics you can get in touch at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk crowd network a place where you belong History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.